This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today on Something You Should Know, how to quickly find a parking spot when the parking lot is mobbed. Then, microchips. And lately, there's been a chip shortage. It was often the case that car companies had cars that were 99% completed but couldn't be sold to customers because they were missing just one or two chips. And that really hammered home the extent to which the entire economy today is just fundamentally dependent on access to the chips that they need. Also, if you have seat heaters in your car, there's something you need to hear. And why is it that very smart people can sometimes make such bad choices and decisions? Generally speaking, when we're in a period of experiencing heightened emotion, we tend to make worse decisions. The more frightened we are, the more angry we are, even with positive emotions sometimes, the more excited, the more happy we are, we tend to make worse decisions. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. If you still have some holiday shopping to do, you know that between now and Christmas, the stores are going to be mobbed. And I've always thought that the big stressor in shopping near the holidays is parking. It's always hard to find a parking place. So here are some effective holiday parking strategies for stressed out shoppers. Plan ahead. Instead of just hoping for the best, pick a time and a place. And generally speaking, the best times to find a decent parking spot are 8.45 in the morning for a store that opens at 9 and later in the afternoon. In fact, 4 o'clock is kind of the peak pooping out time for the all-day shopper. 
and spaces start to open up, giving you a jump on the evening shoppers who will be hungry for that spot after work. If you prefer the primetime hunt, prepare to circle your prey, stay in close proximity to the entrance that you'd like to use of the mall or the store, and then keep your eye on the door and try to make eye contact with exiting shoppers. You should even, you might even smile and wave. If you get the nod, you've probably scored a spot. If a parking garage is an option, do yourself a favor and head straight for the roof. Not only are you more likely to find a spot, you're less likely to forget what level you parked on. That strategy happens to work any time of year. And that is something you should know. You may have heard stories in the news lately about a microchip shortage. It is one of the reasons why, in recent months, many cars have been in short supply. Certain electronics have been hard to get, and the production of a lot of other products has slowed down. These chips are the brains in so many things today, and without them, the products just don't work. So why is there a shortage? Are the chips hard to make? Has the demand gotten too high? And, and what is it that these chips do exactly? And what are they? Here to explain all this is Chris Miller. Chris teaches international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, and he is the author of a big best-selling book out called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Hey, Chris, welcome to Something You Should Know. Great. Well, thank you for having me. So maybe first we should define some terms here. What is a microchip? How is that different, if at all, from a semiconductor or an integrated circuit? What do these terms mean and, and what are they? So they're really used interchangeably. And whether chip or semiconductor or integrated circuit, they all refer to a tiny piece of semiconductor material, usually a piece of silicon, uh, that is inside of all sorts of devices that you depend on, whether you're a smartphone or your PC or also your automobile or your dishwasher. Today, almost anything with an on-off switch has some sort of chip inside of it. And what they do is they let devices think. Uh, inside of each semiconductor are uh, millions, or in some cases, billions of tiny circuits uh, called transistors. Each transistor either is on or off. And as they turn on and off, they create either a one or a zero. And these provide all the ones and zeros that undergird all digital computing. So we wouldn't have any sort of computing power today if it weren't for these chips. And what is it, can, can you talk about the development of this? Because I remember as a kid having a, radios in the house that had transistors and maybe they had, you know, like six transistors or 12 transistors. So how, how did this uh, get up to the numbers you're talking about? Well, the first chip that was commercially available sold in the early 1960s had four transistors on it. Today, if you go to the Apple store and buy a new iPhone, for example, it'll have just on the main chip, 15 billion transistors. So that's been the trajectory from four to 15 billion over the past 60 years. And to fit 15 billion transistors on a chip, you need to make them extraordinarily small. So the, the first transistors made were big enough that you could see them with your bare eyes. Whereas today, transistors are so small, they're measured in nanometers or billionths of a meter. Uh, and the most advanced transistors today are smaller than a virus. And they're produced by the billions, powering all the devices that we rely on. And so the, the evolution from four to billions on a chip, was it 
somewhat gradual or was there like a big moment in time where we went from 10 to 10,000 or, I mean, you know what I mean? It's just, was, was there some big event or it just grew and grew and grew and grew? It's been a, a pretty steady growth, um, but it's been the fastest growth rate of uh, any major phenomenon in modern life. Um, there's a, a scientist named Gordon Moore, who is one of the co-founders of Intel, the biggest U.S. chip firm, who noticed in 1965 that the number of transistors on each chip was doubling uh, every year or two. And that uh, observation became known as Moore's Law. And since the mid-1960s, it has persisted. So every two years, we get chips that are twice as powerful. Um, and what that has provided is the advances in computing that uh, we today take for granted. And I think it's worth putting in perspective just how radical um, a doubling every two years actually is. I mean, imagine if airplanes were to fly twice as fast every two years or houses were to become twice as large every two years at the same cost. There's almost nothing in the economy that changes with such a dramatic growth rate. And yet that's what's happened in semiconductors. And it's made possible um, the explosion of uh, computing power and the application of computing to all manner of devices that's pretty amazing when you when you put it in that that context of um and and is this going to continue well i can't continue forever can it the the doubling every two years well not forever uh we've got a pretty clear pathway for it to continue uh, through at least 2030 or so. But beyond that point, it's really hard to say. Right now, transistors are uh, measured in nanometers, as I mentioned, but pretty soon they'll be measured in just numbers of atoms. Uh, and at some point, they'll become too small to manufacture in a way that makes them any smaller. So at some point, Moore's law is going to become simply impossible to continue. But for at least the next couple of years, there's a pretty clear line of sight into how you can make transistors smaller. So who makes these chips and where do they come from? So in order to manufacture chips with 15 billion component parts in them, you need to tap into one of the most complicated uh, supply chains in history. Uh, you can't make an advanced chip today without acquiring machine tools from the US, Japan, and the Netherlands without using software uh, from a number of different US firms, without acquiring ultra pure silicon and very highly refined other chemicals uh, from Europe and Japan. And then there's only a couple of companies in the world that know how to make the most advanced chips. And today, 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips can only be made by one company, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which today manufactures all of its most advanced chips in Taiwan. Well, that sounds a little scary. I mean, these chips that are such an important part of just, just about everything, how is it that they're only made or mostly made by just one company in Taiwan? Well, the, the challenge with chip making is that it requires enormous economies of scale. Uh, the more chips you produce, the more you can hone your production process, learn to produce more efficiently, uh, and thereby drive up um, your ability to produce lots of chips cheaply. And TSMC, the Taiwanese company that I mentioned, pioneered a new business model several decades ago, whereby rather than producing chips that it designed in-house, which is how most chips had historically been produced, they decided to do no design of chips and simply produce chips for any customer that wanted manufacturing services. 
And that was an appealing business model because it let them focus on what they did really well, manufacturing, but also let them manufacture for a large number of other firms. And so today they manufacture chips for Apple, for AMD, for NVIDIA, uh, for Qualcomm. Many of the world's biggest chip designers use TSMC's manufacturing services. So today they're the world's largest chip maker. And in part because of the world's largest, they're also the most advanced. And today no one can keep up with their rate of innovation. Well, are there any plans or any way to change that? To, ha- to have a, a single source of such an important product from just one place, as I said, it, it seems pretty scary. Well, it is. Uh, and it's particularly scary because their most advanced facilities aren't in Switzerland or in New Zealand. They're in Taiwan, the site of what I would consider the world's most dangerous geopolitical flashpoint. Uh, and this is something that all around the world, political leaders are focusing on and worrying about, whether it's in the US and Japan and Europe and India, there's a growing realization that the concentration of chip making in Taiwan presents too much of a risk, especially given the prospect of a Chinese attack on Taiwan, which is growing, unfortunately, more likely, it seems, as every year passes. We're talking about microchips, semiconductors, integrated circuits, whatever you want to call them. We're talking about them because they're so important and there's been a shortage. And we're about to find out about the shortage. My guest is Chris Miller. He is author of the book Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. A shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin-D for years because, well, just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. So Chris, we've all heard and seen with, you know, cars and with electronic devices shortages because we hear that there aren't enough chips how did that happen where why did there suddenly become not enough chips when it always seemed like that wasn't much of a issue 
the chip shortages of the last couple of years actually emerged from a surge in demand rather than a problem with supply. The number of chips produced globally in 2020 was 8% higher than the previous year. And then in 2021, there was a double digit rate of increase in the number of chips manufactured, but demand surged even more than that, in part because of uh, the trend of working from home, demand for new PCs jumped up as companies prepared to move more of their work online. They needed more data center capacity. And so chips uh, for use in data centers became uh, more in demand. And so as demand grew, chip makers simply couldn't keep up with the unexpected surge in capacity. And that created a, a huge set of downstream effects in other industries. And so companies like car manufacturers, for example, which previously hadn't thought much about semiconductors, even though they rely on dozens or hundreds in each car they produce, found themselves unable to acquire the chips they needed. And their cars needed each of the dozens or hundreds of chips to be fully manufactured. And so it was often the case that car companies had cars that were 99% completed, but couldn't be sold to customers because they were missing just one or two chips. And that really hammered home the extent to which far outside of what is traditionally considered a tech industry, the entire economy today is just fundamentally dependent on access to the chips that they need. So when they make these chips, do they make the chips to the customer's order specifications or are chips chips and you buy them off the, off the shelf and you use them in whatever you want? It depends on which type of chips you're talking about. Memory chips, the types of chips that remember data, are generally all pretty standard regardless of which company produces them. But for most processor chips, the type of chip that would run the operating system in your phone or in your PC, those are specially made uh, for the manufacturer because they're designed to line up specifically with the types of software that they're going to be running. And what that means is that if a company has contracted with one chip manufacturer to produce their chips, it's not easy for them to go to another manufacturer and get production started up uh, right away, nor is it easy to slot in a different type of chip to run your smartphone uh, or your PC. In some cases, it's doable, but it's, it's not a seamless process. Uh, and that reduces the ability of companies to find alternative sources of supply in case they can't get what they're expecting from their primary manufacturer. So what what is it about this that, uh, well, what is it about microchips that got you to write a book about it? I mean, what's so interesting about this to you? Because to, to many of us, it's just a, a part. It's a piece of what makes this thing work. But people don't seem to think a lot about these things, except when there aren't enough of them. But, but what, what is it so, in, why is it so interesting to you? Well, when I started my research, I hadn't thought much about chips either, but I came to realize that the world doesn't work without them. Uh, and to me, what was striking was, I think, first, learning all the different ways in which we rely on chips, even though we hardly ever see them. Second, the way in which chips have structured the world economy today, such that today, China, for example, spends more money importing chips than it spends importing oil. That's not the image of globalization that you probably have in your mind, but that's the reality. You couldn't have global trade as it exists today 
uh, without semiconductors. And then third, I think most importantly, is the extent to which semiconductors are not only about consumer devices, they're also deeply tied up in the production of military power. And there's been a really extensive interconnection between military demands and advances in semiconductor technology. And so today, the most advanced chips aren't only used in uh, in consumer devices, they're also used in military systems. And one of the reasons why governments are so focused on semiconductors today is because they realize the futures of their militaries will, defend, will depend on the ability uh, to uh, marry the most advanced computing power with defense systems. So when I think back on, you know, the years of having PCs and whatnot, I think of Intel and that Intel made chips. That's what they did. Their little card that it's that little thing in the computer that made it work so well, the processor. Is that not this? Well, Intel does make uh, these processors still, um, and they do a, a, a fine job at PC processors. Um, but for Intel, the challenge is that uh, PC processors are a market that's not growing much anymore. Ten years ago, people used to excitedly buy a new PC to uh, be able to take advantage of the next generation processor inside of it because it would work so much faster and better. Whereas today, that's a, a thing of the past for anyone who's not a, a hardcore gamer. Today, the growth markets for semiconductors, where you really need the most advanced capabilities, are in in smartphones and especially in autos and in data centers. And it's really the data center that is the next frontier of semiconductor investment. And although most of us never see a data center or think about a data center, we rely on them uh, in every part of our daily lives. Whenever we sign on the internet, we're using data centers. Much of the software we use today is actually based in a data center in the quote unquote cloud, which is just a bunch of buildings with semiconductors uh, uh, inside of them. And data centers are where many of the key advances in artificial intelligence are being realized. And um, because data centers are nothing but building upon building full of chips, uh, the future of the data center will be defined by uh, whichever company is able to produce the most advanced semiconductors to enable uh, data uh, center storage and data center processing capabilities. And so that's really the, the future of the chip industry is in the data center. So what does Intel make? They just make the processors for PCs and that's it? They do make some data center chips as well, but the type of chips that's growing most rapidly in data centers, which are the types of chips that are optimized for AI applications, are made by competitors of Intel, like AMD and NVIDIA. And Intel's been late to this market, which is why they've been losing market share in data centers, especially with these high-value AI chips over the past couple of years. So what is, what is the life of a chip? And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, when a chip comes out and it's the latest in chip technology, how soon bef be before it becomes old school and that, that, that there's much better chips available? I mean, is it a week? Is it a year or what? Well, if you look at smartphones, um, pretty much every new smartphone model released once a year will have a new chip inside of it. So that's a, a once a year upgrade, which will give you a meaningful increase in computing and memory power in each new generation of smartphone. For data centers, it's a bit of a different calculus um, because in many cases, you'll be willing to keep older chips online because you already paid for them. So even if they're slower, uh, it might not be worth it to buy a new one 
immediately to replace the old ones, even if you will buy new chips for any sort of new data center capacity you bring online. So it's a, it's a complex calculus, but there's a uh, relentless demand for cutting edge chip making for both smartphone applications, for data center applications, uh, as well as, as for PCs. And what we find uh, is that the biggest customers of chip makers like TSMC, the Taiwanese firm, are focused above all on getting access to cutting edge chips. You mentioned that the shortage of chips is is due mostly to a surge in demand. And so where do things stand now? Are, is it catching up? Are we always going to be in a deficit? Where are we on the timeline of this chip shortage? It really depends on which type of chip you're talking about now. For certain types of chips, like memory chips, the uh, shortage has completely been worked through and there's no shortages whatsoever right now. For other types of chips, like uh, for example, certain types of chips used in autos, there still are ongoing shortages. And uh, uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, British company Jaguar Land Rover announced factory closures because they couldn't acquire enough of a certain type of chip. So there's a lot of differentiation uh, in the chip industry in terms of where there are shortages and where in some cases there's actually overcapacity right now. And because not all chips are interchangeable and most are not, uh, you can have a situation where you got overcapacity in certain types and undercapacity in other types. So I've always wanted to know, like in a typical car or, or a smartphone, I mean, how many chips are in there working to do what those things do? So a car could easily have hundreds of chips inside. Now, some of the chips will be very, very simple, like the type of chip that will manage your power seating, moving your seat back and forth. You don't need much computing power to do that. But other chips will be quite complex, like if there's an entertainment system in your car or an automated driving system, these could use pretty close to cutting edge capabilities. And then if your car has more automated driving features, it'll also have more sensors like LiDAR sensors or motion sensors, which will all also have chips that convert the analog signals they're receiving, like light or optical images into data, then funnel them into your car's main processing system. So one of the key trends in car making is to have more and more chips in each car that's produced. Uh, and in the future, cars will be a big a growth driver for the chip industry because of all of the new demands for computing power in new cars. So are things going to get worse before they get better? Or, or what, what's the prediction here of the, for the future? Well, I think for the supply shortages, we're actually seeing a, a really substantial improvement relative to where things were uh, a year or a year and a half ago. Uh, and there's a lot of new investment coming as well that will alleviate um, some of the supply shortages. But as chips become even more widely used in every de everyday device, Devices, our reliance on them will increase. And so even if this iteration of supply shortages is worked through, it raises the stakes uh, when it comes to the question of are we confident uh, in our ability to acquire chips amid a crisis? And as more and more devices require more and more chips, the answer to that question becomes more important. Well, given how these chips are in virtually everything, you know, our life kind of depends on them. It's really interesting to hear the evolution of them and, and what's going on with them and why we've had shortages. I've been talking to Chris Miller. He teaches international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. And his book is called Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for coming on and explaining all this. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You've probably noticed in your life that when there's an emergency or a catastrophe or when something in your life goes extremely wrong, you have trouble thinking, you panic, and, and as a result of panicking, you can make some pretty bad decisions in that moment. Sometimes those decisions make the problem even worse. So why is it we do that? Well, here to discuss this is Christopher Ferguson. He is a professor of psychology at Stetson University in Florida, and he's author of the book Catastrophe, How Psychology Explains Why Good People Make Bad Situations Worse. Hey, Christopher, welcome to Something You Should Know. Uh, Thanks for having me on today. It's a real pleasure. So to get people on board here with what you're talking about, give me an give me an example of how good people make bad decisions even worse. Actually, one of the instances that really caught my attention, I thought was really fascinating, was the case of Air France uh, 447, which is a flight uh, that uh, crashed in the Atlantic uh, about 10 or so years ago. And, you know, a lot of things went wrong on the flight. There were some mechanical issues. But the basic uh, issue that resulted in the crash is that the pilot misperceived what was going wrong with the plane. The plane was losing altitude, and he believed that the right thing to do was to pull back on the stick, which is kind of normal, you know, sort of response in flying a plane, uh, to increase altitude. Uh, And what, in fact, was happening is he was putting the plane into a stall. And... What's interesting about that is he kept trying the same thing over and over and over and over again, uh, rather than trying something different. Uh, And that's the kind of the example of the sort of error that interests me. It's not that he was a bad person. It's not that he was a bad pilot. It's just in a moment of of, of panic, really, you know, when, when things were going wrong, he kind of got stuck in the situation of thinking that a particular behavior really, really should work. Um, and as a consequence, wasn't able to think his way through and try something different that might actually have possibly saved uh, that plane and the passengers that were on it. Well, I'm sure everybody's felt that panicky feeling. And you know, you you can remember how difficult it was to make a decision when you're in panic mode. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things we find is that, generally speaking, when we're in a period of experiencing heightened emotion, we tend to make worse decisions. Now, there are a lot of things that happen that, you know, result in us making bad decisions. But the more frightened we are, the more angry we are, even with positive emotions, sometimes the more excited, the more happy we are, you know, if we feel like we're in love, for instance, you know, we tend to make worse decisions. It makes it more tempting for us to look for evidence 
that supports the way we view the world already and ignore that which does not. And that can result in us making, you know, horrible decisions, even though our intentions are good. And it makes you wonder why human beings have this. It seems like it's it's fairly common, almost universal, mm-hmm. that that when panic sets in, people tend to do what appear to be, in retrospect, pretty dumb things, but at the time seemed like a good idea. You you would think that evolutionarily that we would work that out of us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what happens is with a lot of these situations, if you're feeling fear, if you're feeling anger or something negative in particular, you may be, at least evolutionarily speaking, in the situation of needing to make a very a very fast decision. Uh, so if you think of the example of, you know, 20,000 years ago, you're an early human, you're in the savanna or some other place, and you come across another human being, you need to make decisions about that person very, very rapidly. Uh, and whether that person is going to kill you uh, or not, basically. Uh, so you need to come to that decision very, very quickly. And so what happened is that we evolved a lot of, of, of cognitive tendencies to try to evaluate situations rapidly with limited data. Now, that might serve us well for being chased by a tiger. Uh, for instance, but it, those same adaptations don't always serve us well in a modern, complicated, multiracial, you know, multi-ethnic uh, society. So again, what we tended to do in the past is we tend to look for superficial differences to try to evaluate, is this person, you know, different from my group? And knowing that was useful, you know, in terms of estimating how likely that person was to be aggressive. But it's not very useful to us, again, in the modern United States, where you now see the same types of cognitive biases result in ethnocentrism, racism, and other kinds of problems that we're dealing with today. So give me some more examples of how this plays into our thinking and our lives and and the decisions we make. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, some of the kind of typical cognitive biases that we see include things like the one is what we call the availability heuristic which means that if you it's easy for you to remember an event you tend to overestimate how frequent that is and how big of a problem it is uh so once again i mean the example of plane crashes were kind of a classic example that plane crashes tend to be uh very memorable they get a lot of news attention they're actually quite rare for the most part and they've been increasingly rare over time but what happens is people see these, they see them on the news, and they tend to worry more about traveling by air. So we see a lot more people who have phobias of air travel and things like that. Uh, people tend to overestimate how frequent air crashes actually are um, compared to automobile accidents. And what happened is a lot of scholars and, of course, the, you know, the air travel industry spent decades telling people over and over and over again that you're actually more at risk traveling by car than by air. And it's eventually kind of worked, you know, so I think people kind of know that now. Uh, but it did take a lot of effort to present the data over and over and over and over again uh, to get past some of those cognitive biases involving the, avail- the availability heuristic. We see the same kind of phenomena with things like people overestimate how frequent crime is, people overestimate how frequent a lot of bad things are. We really have this kind of focus in on bad things. And if we can remember specific bad things like mass homicides are another good example, we tend to think they're a lot more common uh, than than they are. That's just one example of a very common um, cognitive bias. I mean, there are others 
but basically, we tend to adopt particular beliefs about the world, and it can be very challenging. Not impossible, but it can be very challenging to get people to to challenge those beliefs by looking at data and actual evidence. But that's just how people are. I mean, we all do it, and that's the way human beings are. So, what's the harm? What's the what's the problem? Well, oftentimes what happens is that we end up trying to fix a problem, either fix a problem that doesn't actually exist, uh, or we end up uh, fixing the problem in the wrong way, or we fix the wrong problem, you know. So uh, there may be an example of a real issue. So let's take, for instance, climate change, you know. So climate change, you know, uh, most of the data suggests is a real problem, but uh, at least in part, humans are contributing uh, to this problem, and there are lots of different solutions uh, that we may have to to deal with that. Uh, one of these is this issue of nuclear energy, right? You know, so the evidence we have right now, and you know, and I'm a psychologist, I'm not an energy researcher by any means, but you know, I look through this evidence, you know, and considering this, but the evidence suggests that for the most part, nuclear energy is pretty safe. Uh, that the number of deaths attributable to nuclear energy is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction compared to, you know, coal-fired plants and, you know, even natural gas and things like that. But there's a lot of resistance, you know, from particularly the left in regards to nuclear energy. People are worried about the radiation. They're worried about uh, contamination. They're worried about accidents like Three Mile Island, which, you know, continues to be brought up, even though that happened decades ago. Um, and as a consequence, you can end up in situations like what Germany is facing right now. They, they are struggling to meet their energy needs because of the war in Ukraine, and they've been shutting down their nuclear reactors. And what we're seeing in Germany is because of that sort of suspiciousness of nuclear energy, what they're doing is they're going back and firing back up their old coal plants you know, to try to meet the needs that they need to get for energy over the winter. Uh, so there you see a situation where, you know, people are overestimating the risk. There's not zero risk, but people are overestimating the risk of nuclear energy. And it's actually causing pe people, at least in Germany, to move back into using a lot of fossil fuels, which is going to worsen the problem of uh, climate change rather than, than fix it. So again, you have a movement you know, from the left that uh, is worried about climate change. That's a good faith effort. It's a real problem. But their fears about nuclear energy are actually making the situation worse rather than better. Well, it, it, that's a good example of a situation that I've always wondered about is that nuclear energy has a reputation. It has an image that, you know, the as you say, the left thinks it's horrible. And, and therefore, if you're on the left, you kind of have to adopt that stance. That even, mm -hmm. e And a lot of people, if you ask them about nuclear energy, wouldn't even know very much about it. They just adopt the stance because that's what their tribe does. Absolutely. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of attitudes and our ways of thinking things do come from the sense of social conformity. So if you look at things like climate change, um, you'll see that... Neither Republicans or Democrats or the right or the left are necessarily any more educated on this issue. Uh, so Republicans tend to be more skeptical of climate change because that's what Republicans do. Um, and, you know, Democrats make fun of that a lot. But the reality is, is that, you know, Democrats believe in climate change because that's what Democrats do. You know, it's not really that they know more about climate change than, than Republicans. We tend to oftentimes adopt our attitudes about the world by looking around and, you know, seeing, you know, who also believes in something. And if they're people that are 
quote unquote on our side or part of our tribe, as you said, we tend to be more likely to 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 adopt that. It's actually fairly rare to find people who are it does happen, but it is fairly rare to find people who are willing to kind of buck the social trend to stand up to their own group and say that their own group uh, may be wrong. And of course, when they do, they're they're usually <laughs> immediately punished uh, for, uh, you know, for doing so. So certainly you know, social conformity is a big part of the problem we have in, uh, in in making in good decisions. I mean, I I see a lot of the people that have these signs on their yard of you know we believe in science, and I actually tend to, you know, speaking as a scientist, worry about that because science really isn't a group of thoughts that are handed down from on high that are absolutely true. It's a process, you know, and that process is messy and complicated and and nuanced, and very rarely. The science on most issues tell either the left or the right what they want to hear. Um, so I, I think that you know those statements tend to be a little bit of a distortion of how science works. But but there again, you can see that there's this kind of like moral element to it. That what they're hoping for is that science is going to support their moral worldview of how the world should work. And it's very difficult once people start to wrap their beliefs in a sense of moral goodness, it becomes even more difficult to help people understand that things may be more nuanced or different, or that they might even be, again, in good faith, simply wrong. Talk about toilet paper. <laughs> the, the toilet paper is a great example of, of you know, how everybody kind of knows something is wrong and there's nothing you can do about it <laughs> because of the way that like you know, social processes inform people's decisions. So, of course, this is referring to the uh, the early days of COVID-19 when suddenly we were all without toilet paper and nobody could figure out why. So this is a, a kind of a behavioral phenomenon that's called, a, you know, an availability cascade, you know. So basically, once the ball kind of gets rolling on something, even if you know that it's misinformed, it's really difficult to do anything about it. Uh, so at the beginning of COVID-19, if people don't remember, all of a sudden there were these, you know, toilet paper shortages because people were hoarding toilet paper. Toilet paper had nothing to do with COVID-19, but uh, essentially a few people started to hoard toilet paper. And we could kind of look at them. I think initially people did saying, well, they're irrational. Uh, what they're doing doesn't make sense. But once they begin to do it, then even if you recognize that hoarding toilet paper is kind of silly, well, you begin to think, well, if they're hoarding toilet paper, then I should begin to hoard toilet paper too because the less informed people are going to have all the toilet paper if I don't, you know. So basically, even if a process is started by people who perhaps are less rational, they're less informed, they're responding emotionally to that, it sort of traps us all in the same pattern. We really can't resist it or else, you know, you can be the smart person saying like, look, it's actually very easy to make toilet paper even during COVID-19, so I'm not going to hoard anything. And you're going to end up without toilet paper because everybody else is engaging in hoarding. And, and so it, it points out how these social processes can make it very difficult for people to make good informed decisions when everybody else around them is not. So other than looking at this and finding it really interesting, is there any advice from all of this? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, absolutely there is. So what you can do is you know, start presenting the data. So people do actually kind of listen to data. You know, 
I kind of used the example. I actually have done a lot of research on on violence in video games. I've been involved in that for 20 years. And when I first started in this field, everybody thought that violent video games caused mass shootings. Um, and now very few people do. You know, some people still do. And you know, it still comes up, absolutely. But there's been a, a real change in public attitudes around video games over the last two decades. And a lot of that has been, you know, scholars, myself being one, but certainly other people as well, presenting the evidence over and over and over. There really just is not data to link violent video games to mass homicide. And, you know, what I kind of tell people, and this sounds a little depressing, is, is it really was a 15-year process, you know, that uh, if you kind of start with people having a really wrong idea, let's say nuclear energy is dangerous, uh, whatever it might be, uh, and you have good data and you present it over and over again calmly and rationally, you can expect within 15 years <laughs> to have sort of changed uh, public attitudes in in a more data-based uh, direction. So it does take a while. You mentioned that in, in Germany, the, the problem with uh, coal and nuclear, ha has it changed minds now that these coal plants are coming back online? Have people gone, oops, we made a mistake, or are they going, <laughs> or, or not? Yeah. So you have really two different groups of people that, you know, when presented with the oops moment, you know, tend to react very differently. So with any kind of issue like that, you're going to get a certain group of people who are highly invested in the mistake. Um, you know, they've staked their reputations. Uh, they made big promises uh, about that issue. And generally what we see is that those people almost never back down. Um, sometimes they do. And I, I have been impressed occasionally by some, you know, there have been a few people that will say, you know, I dedicated my life to X and it turns out X is wrong. You know, so there are some brave souls out there. But generally speaking, like the people who are most invested, they're the, the loudest activists, they're the loudest politicians, very rarely back down off of you know, a big claim like that. But then you have the general public, you know, who's much less invested, you know, in this issue and aim the data at them uh, and try to bring them around. So, I mean, I've seen a little bit of movement on nuclear energy you know, just in the last year or two, as I think people have started to understand that maybe nuclear isn't so bad. And I think that part of that is these situations where, um, you know, we're seeing that, solar and wind and geothermal are really not succeeding in meeting the immediate needs that people have with energy you know so that particular in europe now as they're going through an energy crisis uh over this winter you know there's just no way that solar and geothermal and wind and water are going to meet the needs of um, the european continent so we're seeing a lot of europe shifting back to coal which is not the direction we wanted to go and so i think people are starting to understand that some of the promises that were made about renewables maybe 20 50 years from now maybe that really 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 will work um but right now they're not well this whole idea of how our emotions and our beliefs affect our our thinking and our decisions is something that you know people don't think about that we think we like to think that we make decisions based on the facts that we know we can look at a situation and understand it and it's really interesting to hear how you know what you believe is probably influenced by a lot more than the facts i've been talking with christopher ferguson he is a professor of psychology at stetson university in florida and the name of his book is catastrophe how Psychology Explains Why Good People Make Bad Situations Worse. 
And there is a link to that book in the show notes for this episode. Hey, thanks, Christopher. Appreciate you being here. Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. And uh, hopefully this was useful. If you've got heated seats in your car, you could be at risk of something called toasted skin syndrome. Dermatologists see this on the backsides of patients this time of year. And in most cases, victims have cranked up their seat heaters on high for a long trip or a long commute, and then they wind up with this dark red web-like rash on the back of their thighs. The good news is that toasted skin syndrome is not an actual burn. It's not really serious. It's more of a cosmetic thing. Toasted skin will fade over time, but the concern is that an unusual rash may result in unnecessary testing if you're not aware of the source. Some toasted skin syndrome rashes have also cropped up on other body parts as well. The lap is at risk from resting your hot laptop there, as are your ankles and shins if you use an under-the-desk space heater. And that is something you should know. You know, this is normally the time at which I ask you to share this podcast with someone you know. And you can also share this on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can share it with all your contacts. And I'd appreciate it if you would do that. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.